Hello, this is Dr. James Wright from uh, University of Cambridge. I'm an associate editor of Heart and I'm at the British Cardiovascular Society in Manchester. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Arthur Yu, who is a consultant cardiologist from the University of Southampton NHS Trust. Uh, Dr. Yu is an expert in electrophysiology and is uh, talking tomorrow at the British Cardiovascular Society meeting um, about the uh, referral guidelines uh, that we should be considering uh, in electrophysiology practice. Arthur, many thanks for uh, joining me today. I just wondered if you could perhaps start by um, explaining a little bit of the background uh, to the problem and uh, why electrophysiologists are important in uh, helping us solve these problems. Thank you, James. Uh, pleasure to be here. Let me start by talking about the uh, context of the problem. Um, there are many guidelines in cardiac rhythm management out there. Um, we have the uh, NSF Chapter 8 uh, providing the overall guidance and we have the NICE guidelines of course and then there are the many uh, well-respected guidelines from North America and Europe that are based on best available evidence mm -hmm. and uh, expert consensus. Uh, but the problem for the referrer is that these are guidelines uh, targeted primarily at the provider and the specialists. And it's not always easy for the referrer to tease out the, the relevant information uh, for referring a patient. Okay. So, so we have um, recommendations like uh, class 1 to class 3 recommendations and level of evidence A to C, and in the NICE guidelines, they talk about recommendations of interventions that must be used, uh, should be used, or could be used. So I want to distill all this information into a uh, simple language for referrals and classifying the recommendations as uh, urgent, routine, or maybe probably not needed at all. Okay, sounds... Excellent. So um, perhaps you could start then yeah. with if you if you take the first group that you that you mentioned there the the urgent group. I mean, what kind of patients would you say are uh, you know definitely need to be referred to uh, an electrophysiology or EP specialist? Um, perhaps it would be easier to go through the individual um, arrhythmias. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Let's talk about um, arrhythmias related to. Um, accessory pathways. Okay. Um, I think Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome is a much talked about condition mm. and um, we don't actually see that much of uh, Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome nowadays because a lot of them uh, have been previously ablated by electrophysiologists uh, at a younger age but we do see them. Um, in fact uh, patients with Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome uh, when they present with uh, palpitations uh, the sudden death risk is probably overemphasized in a number of cohort studies um, taking into account patients with and without uh, symptoms and pre-excitation. The annual mortality rate per year is about just over one in a thousand. And this is for asymptomatic patients? Let's take into account both yeah. symptomatic and asymptomatic. Okay. But certainly if patients have symptoms 
and if they have um, pre-excited atrial fibrillation, then the risks are, are higher. Right. So in terms of a more urgent indication, it would be patients with very fastly conducted atrial fibrillation uh, with a short R to R interval. Okay. The much talked about pre-excited R to R interval of less than 250 milliseconds is mainly useful if you don't see it. So it has a good negative protective value. Right. And not, not so good in predicting the ones who will go on to have ventricular fibrillation. But if you do see a patient presenting with uh, pre-excitation and a very fast uh, conduction with uh, perhaps a heart rate of over 200 beats per minute, or if you have a patient with pre-excited atrial fibrillation and syncope, then there will be an urgent need to refer these patients. Okay. If you had a patient with um, who came for a routine surgical procedure and a 12-lead ECG revealed evidence of an accessory pathway and the patient denied any symptoms or family history of sudden death, are those people that you'd still be interested in seeing or would you recommend that the district general cardiologist carry out maybe halter monitoring or treadmill testing? Yeah, that's a very important uh, group of patients. Um, asymptomatic pre-excitation. Yeah. Um, when it's intermittent, so it, if you see it sometimes but not, and if you see that spontaneously on a 12-lead ECG, or if you see that uh, on a whole-term monitor or on exercise testing, yes, uh, that would suggest that the pathway is unlikely to conduct rapidly to the ventricle. I see. And that usually indicates a lower risk. And particularly if the patient is over the age of about 40, these factors tend to suggest that these patients are of relatively low risk of any serious consequences of ventricular arrhythmias secondary to rapidly conducted atrial fibrillation. Yes. And so these patients um, do not always have to be seen by an EP specialist. The higher risk group will be the, the very young age group. Uh, perhaps those would be seen more often by the paediatric cardiologists. I see, before they actually reach adult practice. Exactly. Okay. okay. Are there any other groups of patients that would fit into that urgent referral category? You've mentioned patients with accessory pathways with evidence of rapidly conducted atrial fibrillation, where there's a risk of ventricular fibrillation. Are there any other groups that maybe the DGH cardiologist is struggling with that uh, you would uh, generally like to see sooner rather than later? Uh, certainly ventricular tachycardia patients, uh, they have to be referred urgently. And I don't anticipate that this would be a problem because um, if patients present with sustained broad complex tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, they are usually referred quite instantly. <laughs> yes. um, but it is important to bear in mind that some VTs uh, don't have broad complexes on ECGs, especially if they arise from the septum or from near the hispokinji system. Okay. So in those circumstances, uh, pay attention to any signs of VA dissociation or slurring of the upstroke of the QRS complexes on the right precordial leads. Um, 
At the same time, there are patients with VTs and structurally normal heart on echocardiography. And in fact, these patients can have very good prognosis. And sometimes we call them idiopathic VTs. And they can be managed just like patients with SVTs. And they can undergo a curative ablation to have a very good prognosis without the need for antiarrhythmic drugs. Okay. The other spectrum uh, is patients with structural heart disease, especially patients with a left ventricular ejection fraction of uh, less than 35%. NICE guidelines at the moment recommended primary prevention ICD for patients with a primary uh, with a previous myocardial infarction of over four weeks and left ventricular ejection infection of 35% or less. And then there are further criteria as to whether you should look at uh, the halter recording and then the QRS duration measurements. But I believe that one should have a low threshold of at least speaking to your nearest electrophysiologist when you see a patient with impaired left ventricular function of less than 35%, simply because I think that a lot of patients are potentially missed because if the physicians or cardiologists become too bogged down with analysing the Holter and QRS durations and subsequently um, not referred or delayed the referral, mm -hmm. it is better that a referral is made earlier and then the investigations are either discussed with, with an electrophysiologist or actually performed by them. It just means that there's an extra pair of eyes going through the tracings, but that patients eligible won't be missed. Mm. Mm. No, I think that's really sound advice because uh, I think uh, many of us you know, do struggle with the, the cut-off and perhaps hold on to patients too, uh, too long without getting a, a second opinion, an EP opinion. And as you say, the guidelines are, are constantly changing now. I think more, more patients are becoming eligible, aren't they, for, for ICDs. Uh, and just finally, just turning to, towards um, the uh, ablation side of things, particularly for atrial fibrillation. Uh, atrial fibrillation seems to be a very hot topic at the moment with um, not necessarily new drugs coming down the pipeline, but expanding role for, um, for ablation within the pulmonary veins, both for paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, but also seemingly now for, for more permanent uh, or persistent atrial fibrillation. Have you got any, any, any views you'd like to share with the audience on that? Is this, are, you more, are you keen now to, to see patients with atrial fibrillation early after the onset before it becomes permanent? Yes, absolutely. Um, when atrial fibrillation was once thought to be an unablatable arrhythmia, uh, but we are now understand that, uh, at least in the majority of patients with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, focal discharges from the muscle sleeves of the pulmonary veins are the initiating events and uh, if we isolate, electrically isolate the pulmonary veins, we get very good results for paroxysmal patients. That's for paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Yeah. Less so with persistent atrial fibrillation. Okay. Um, NICE guidelines in 2006 recommended uh, AF ablation as an option for patients who were refractory to medical therapy. Um, but to many, this has been taken as treat until you have exhausted your options of antiarrhythmic drugs. Right. 
but that meant that many patients progressed from paroxysmal to persistent and long-standing pers persistent atrial fibrillation. And that is bad news for the patients because such a progression in the electrophysiological substrate of atrial fibrillation would mean that an ideal patient would deteriorate to a less optimal candidate for AF fibrillation and eventually to a poor candidate for AF fibrillation. And the success rate of an AF fibrillation could reduce from over 80% or 90% in a paroxysmal patient to less than 60% even after repeated procedures if you wait too long. And is this because of structural changes happening within the atria itself? Yes, there is a lot of research in this, into this area. Um, there is structural electrophysiological changes and progressive scarring of the Asians right. that you can see on the MRI. Uh, we don't know exactly why, but we can see nowadays from uh, non-invasive mapping uh, of the heart showing that there are more and more complicated focal discharges and rotational re-entry drivers as you progress. I see. So in the latest NICE guidelines that are currently still in draft format but due to be published next week, okay. the wording has relaxed somewhat so that uh, AF ablation is now an option if drug therapy has failed. So implying that if you fail one drug, then referral to an electrophysiologist would be indicated. And in fact, this is supported by the um, 2012 uh, Joint Heart Rhythm Society and European Guidelines for AF Ablation, and now supported by the 2014 ACC AHA Guidelines in terms of referral for AF Ablation, so that uh, it, they clearly specify that AF Ablation should be offered to patients after failure of one antirhythmic drug. And that's not beta blockers or calcium antagonists. These are von Williams class 1 or class 3 antirhythmic drugs. Okay, well that's, <coughs> that's very clear actually and um, uh, hopefully you haven't just uh, asked for a deluge of, uh, of work to hit, you, hit your department but I think that's um, a really uh, excellent message to perhaps to finish the, in the interview on. So the expanding role of... Uh, um, of electrophysiological management early on in the course of the disease you think has, is going to lead hopefully to better outcomes for patients. Exactly. So thank you very much indeed Dr Yu for joining me today in Manchester at the British Cardiovascular Society and uh, please check the uh, BCS website and the Heart website uh, for further episodes of the Heart podcast. I'm Dr James Rudd from the University of Cambridge.